Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Ontario numbers seem to be stabilizing as we enter the second wave. Are the federal liberals moving to shut down debate on any pandemic income support? And what has the COVID-19 pandemic done to elective surgeries, specifically around kids? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Kurt's away. We got to fill in. Get ready. Hi, I'm Alicia Thompson, Scott's daughter. It's Kurt's first day back at school since breaking his leg. He forgot to record his intro, so you've got me. You think he fell on his head, not leg. Ah. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Further proof, every member of the family is replaceable. We got, you lose one, you get another. Uh, Kurt is, uh, uh, as you know, or maybe don't know, but uh, about a week ago, he broke his leg. Yeah, exactly. In the middle of a pandemic, he breaks his leg. You know what emergencies like during a uh, pandemic? I digress. Uh, so he's been off because uh, he's, you know slowly recovering and he went back today for the first time and in all the commotion we forgot to get him to record his intro hence alicia filling in uh my eldest who you know do i have to uh and is uh, online uh taking her university courses uh as we speak so uh hey you know what that's the great thing uh if someone's missing we just rotate every <laughs> it's your turn to make dinner too all right, it is uh, 12-11 at Scott Thompson. Uh, how you doing? It's the week number 29 of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Will Erskine back at the station keeping uh, the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air, as he has done for uh, 29 weeks. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Lots of ways to do that. Facebook and Twitter, also on the website at 900CHML.com. You will find you will find the commentary there. Interesting question uh, I'm posing to everyone now. Uh, if... It seems to be it's a greater challenge to get people to now comply by the protocol than it is to discover a vaccine. You know, everybody's running around waiting for the vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccine. We can't get people to follow the protocol. That's why we're slowly seeing numbers tick up as things slowly start to reopen and a retraction now and a gentle reminder. We have got to follow the protocol. Uh, the social distancing, the wearing of the face masks, the washing of the hands, it ain't over yet. Uh, lots to touch on throughout the course of the show, but first let's bring in Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, a Chief Medical Officer, City of Hamilton. Find out what the hammer is like right now and how we are coping with this uh, uptick in cases. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Indeed I am. And sorry to hear about your son. That's, that is a real drag, having a broken leg, especially now. I know it's uh, you can imagine what it was like when all of a sudden we realized that uh, we have to make a trip to the emergency department in the middle of a uh, pandemic. Anyway, uh, and kudos to everybody who's uh, working so hard, all the health, uh, all the health workers and such, because, again, they've got it down to an art form now, uh, 29 weeks in, and you can certainly get around uh, no problems, which is great to see. So, uh, Elizabeth, give us a little update of where we are in Hamilton and how this uptake that we're seeing or uptake and cases we're seeing is affecting us here in Hamilton. Yes, and you know, you've really in your introduction you know, hit the nail on the head in terms of what's going on. We're up 11 cases uh, today. We were up 41 over the weekend um, from Friday to, to uh, end of day Sunday and another 11 over the last 24 hours. And so, 
you know, we really are seeing that increase in cases. We had before that had these little sort of small ways that were occurring. And I was really hopeful the end of last week as the numbers had come down a little bit, that maybe it was another one of those. But as we've seen with the rest of the province, Hamilton's there with them. We've joined in. Our case numbers are continuing to rise. We're at 9.4 cases averaged per day over the last week, which is well up. We peaked out in the uh, first wave of this epidemic at 11.6. So you can see how we're getting very much up to those numbers. We've also got, um, you know, two outbreaks now that have been declared. Each of them just has one staff person involved at this point, uh, which is good news. That's what we saw towards the end of the uh, the outbreaks that happened in our long-term care homes and elsewhere. Um, but the, the challenge is that this is very much a place where what we're seeing with cases is that people are, are going out, they're doing things, they're letting their guard down. Um, and it's not a time to be doing that. You can see this is exactly is what happens when people do that. We've opened up so many things. We are back to seeing more people because we need to see more people when we're going to school, if we're going to work. Um, but we can need to continue to make all of the modifications that we can to limit the opportunities for spread. So that means working from home when you can. That means, um, you know, making sure to follow measures like masking when you need to be uh, close to others. It means having that physical distance. It means the hand washing those things. It's when we're going over the cases, um, we see these clusters that happen. Somebody's somebody let their guard down. It then spreads through their household, or they're continuing to see their social network even though they're sick. And you know they should have stayed home. They should have maintained their physical distance. Um, it's pretty simple to see why it's happening, and it's pretty simple to fix in many ways. But we, we were- each of us individually, need to get on it. We were talking about this uh, two weeks ago, uh, Doctor, as kids uh, in in university students were heading back to class and such, and we were starting to see upticks, which were obviously from two weeks pre- uh, previous to that, which would have been the long weekend. So is what we're seeing now sort of the back-to-school, back-to-university uh, uh, group of, of cases that are going through here? And uh, today we seem to be a little lower. I mean, I'm sure that can spike up tomorrow just as quickly as it went back down today. Uh, but but what are your thoughts on where we are and where we've come from the last two weeks? Yeah, it, it, and it's really important to remember that it's all of two weeks to turn anything around to make it worse or to make it better. Yeah. And so um, what we're seeing and what we're seeing in terms of the actual cases, it's coinciding with going back to school, but it isn't from what we're seeing. It's not about going back to school. Yeah. Um, the cases that we're seeing aren't among school-aged kids. School-aged kids, you know, especially the younger ones under 10, they don't tend to transmit the virus is what we're seeing. Um, it is more, what we're seeing more of is in that 20 to 40-year age group who are socializing. They're going away to cottages still. They may go visit friends um, who are elsewhere. Then they get sick. They bring it back. They spread it amongst their household and amongst their social group. Um, and so it really, it really is about, about adults rather than about the kids. Uh, and obviously we have to remember the schools are controlled environments, so they're doing their best to keep, uh, the protocol up. Whereas when we are in social gatherings, sometimes that's less the case. Now we remember in the last two weeks, it was, it was that 20 to 39 or 40 year old, uh, demographic where the, the majority of the new cases, 
uh, were falling into. And again, we've seen different events and things happen over, over the weekend and such where there's large gatherings of people. Now that we're seeing this spike and now that we're seeing what can happen two weeks later, is that message starting to resonate now with this demographic? We sure hope it is, you know, and we're going to be doing our part to make sure that we're out there talking about it and uh, and that people get that message and these numbers come down. I mean, the, the things that we have seen, like the big car rallies um, that have happened the last couple of weekends, those are really disappointing that people are going out doing those things. I get, you know, wanting to get back to doing some things that we find fun, but we have to find the things that we can do safely, that we can do while we're still following those measures and, um if we don't, we're going to have continued spread. And what we see is when there's continued spread, you know, some people in that demographic may think, ah, it's not such a bad thing. You know, most people in my age group don't get sick. They don't end up in hospital. They don't die from the disease. But that does actually happen in every age group that those things happen. And we also are seeing that spread to the older age groups from the younger age groups. And we've seen now we're at five hospitalizations again, still lower um, than we were, but you know, this—that's always again going to lag. As you're say, saying, we tend to see, you know, the hospitalizations and the deaths a couple of weeks after we see the cases. So, we want to get those again, numbers down. We want to protect and, people. And the end result is, no matter what age group that's getting sick. I mean, if the numbers go up, the restrictions are only going to get heavier, and this is only going to be delayed even longer. Uh, there was lots of chatter at the beginning of all this, doctor, but the message getting out. I mean, is there anybody out there that doesn't know the message? I mean, it's we've been ram- having this rammed over our heads for like twenty nine weeks. Uh, is it more fatigue or ig- ignorance than it is the message? I mean, I think we all know what we're supposed to do, don't we? I think it's fatigue. I think as as people went through the second half of the summer, you know, as we got into later July and August, that that people thought, well, you know, the case numbers are down. Maybe I can do a little bit more. I think there is the the fact that things did get opened up a little bit more, and maybe maybe people over um, you know overdid it on the getting out and and doing things and started to think they could take a little bit more liberties and perhaps. Uh, they really should have. And so I think that's part of it as well. And so we need to tighten that back up. And, um, you know, it's so critical that we be able to keep our kids in school, that we be able to keep the economy running, um, and that we be able to do some of the things that we need to do to, to keep ourselves mentally well. And so it's we don't want to go back to lockdowns and that sort of thing. None of us do. And so that's why following these measures, it's an individual choice. It's an individual thing that each of us needs to do. And the second wave, and you know, I guess we don't want to get caught too much in the semantics here, but obviously if, if this is a second wave, very much different from the first. We're seeing those heavy numbers as I compare notes from way back to, you know, my goodness, uh, April, March and such. We had equally as high new cases, but the deaths were a lot uh, higher. We've managed to contain that. How How concerned are you that two weeks from now or whatever the modeling shows that this will continue to rise and we'll be back to where we were, especially with long-term care? Yeah, we've learned a lot. Our long-term care homes have, our retirement homes, our congregant settings, they have done so much. They did so much work over the the course of the first wave. And, and, you know, there's a lot of of issues that are still to be solved. We have the Long-Term Care Commission that is looking at the issues and making recommendations about further sort of systematic things that need to be addressed. But we'll be, um, you know, calling on all of those settings to make sure, you know, double down their efforts to uh, to do what they can to prevent the spread. But ultimately, 
they reflect what's going on in the community and it's, it's coming from, from all of us into those settings. So it's all of us that need to make the changes. And if not, then I am worried. I am worried that, you know, somebody will, you know, very much inadvertently, you know, trying to keep down the spread, they, that there will be some creep back into those sort of settings and, uh, and we, we see more hospitalizations and deaths. So as these numbers uh, slowly have crept up, obviously the cry, we've got to shut it down, we've got to move backwards, we've got to close things down. Do we need to move towards a greater shutdown of some sort? I mean, many have said that it would not be like the first wave. You're not going to see a blanket shutdown. It'll be a more targeted affair. But do we need to, to take a, a, a further look at perhaps putting more restrictions on movement? Well, we we take a look at this regularly, and, and you know, amongst us in, in public health, and have those discussions more broadly in the city, and we'll continue to have those. At at this point, it really is not about those kinds of settings. It is about the decisions to, um, you know, let your take your mask off, to let down your guard, to not do physical distancing, more in social settings. And so, you know, if we can get that message out, get people to making make those changes perhaps we can not go to further controls but we'll keep evaluating it over the coming weeks and see you know along with the rest of the province whether there's more that that we need to do in order to bring these numbers down uh i i get emails uh and see it on social media all the time those that still think that this is absolutely nothing that it's all a hoax and that it's a pandemic. Uh, i've seen that what do you how do you respond to that yeah, I've seen a number of those as well. And, and you know, I've seen lots of the little takeoffs on that term. And I think that we need to remember that this is something, you just t- turn to that first wave and look at what we saw in terms of the impacts on people who were vulnerable, but not just them. There are longstanding effects. We've seen people, some people have referred to them as the long haulers who have yeah. long-term experience with this. They're sick for months. And and these are people who were previously healthy in their 20s, in their 30s, um, and we don't yet know what the long-term consequences are for all of us around this disease and what's going to happen with it. So there's lots to learn about it. It's not a time to be complacent. complacent. We've got a ways to go with this virus to understand it and to, to get as, uh, as many preventive measures and control measures in place um, and selectively so that they target the right things. Uh, it's not a time to sit back. You, uh, we've talked about mental health many uh, times on the show in regard to COVID-19, how it affects everybody. As you mentioned, we have to get out. We have to have the kids back in school, some sort of social development going on. Um, what do you say to those that, you know, as you said, towards the end of the summer, ooh, it looks like things are light, uh, easing up a bit and we can get out in the sunshine. And now we're hearing, oh, my goodness, you see these numbers creeping up and the anxiety and such. What message do you have for those that are going, my God, we have to do this again? Yeah, and I and I get it. I, it's, it, you know, we'd all we all wish for uh, things being otherwise, but that's that's so in life. Whether we're talking about COVID nineteen or what might be happening at work today, or you know, so many things that go on in our lives, is that we'd wish for it all to be perhaps a certain way, but we have to deal with the reality and where it where it's at. And so, you know, each of us needs to be looking at what we can do to control it so that we can have you know, in place the things that are important from a mental health perspective. So, you know, anxiety around these things is absolutely understandable. And then we have to turn that around and say, okay, what can we do about it? How can we be responsible? How can we promote that responsibility in our community while still reaching out and making sure that we connect with people virtually, that we, you know, maintain the social distance in those settings, that, you know, in places like schools that we're quite 
cautious and, and thorough in the way that we're applying the controls. So, you know, mental health is something we'll continue to support and we need to think about as we go forward as well. Uh, message, uh, a couple seconds left, message for uh, Hamiltonians as uh, we embark on, on another week. Double down. Take a look at, at what it is that you're doing, what you're doing with your friend group, what you're doing with your household, and think about, you know, is this something I need to do today? Is this, you know, am I following all the control measures that I can? Am I wearing my mask? Am I keeping physical distancing? We really need to each of us think about it on a personal level. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson has been with us, Chief Medical Officer, City of Hamilton. Elizabeth, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You as well. All right. We might remember during the early stages of the first wave, uh, for some reason, toilet paper was flying off the shelf. I thought it was a respiratory illness, not the other end, but clearly people have their priorities. Uh, and, and it was like hand sanitizer and toilet paper were, was flying out of the out of the stores. And I remember talking to food experts at that time saying, you know, it's just everybody's hoarding at once. If they just relax and buy what they normally buy, we'll be fine. Uh, are we going to see that sort of thing in the second wave? Let's bring in Michael von Massau, OAC Chair in Food System Leadership, Associate Professor of Food Agriculture and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph, and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm well. I hope you are too. Yes, thank you. So will we see the same sort of thing that we saw at the beginning of this? Uh, it was funny. I was watching uh, a lady coming out of the grocery store the other day, and she did seem to have an abundance of toilet paper. Are we going back to where we were when this all started? It, it, it appears that we're going down the same path again. Uh, uh, my guess is it won't be as significant as last time, and, and it's a little bit toilet paper. I think toilet paper is 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 sort of following on the core product, which is paper towel right now that we're seeing mm. shortages of, uh, for a variety of reasons. We're we're sanitizing more because we're less, we're feeling less sure as as numbers go up. Kids were going to school and they're coming home. Some of us have expanded our bubbles and are having more people, if not in the house, than on the deck and that sort of thing. More of us are going back to work, so there, there there's an increase in sanitation sanitizing, which has increased the demand in the short term for, for uh, paper towel, which means we've run short of paper towel a couple times, and then people start to freak out, oh, God, mm. I need to make sure I have enough paper towel, and maybe toilet paper, too, if they're out of one and not the other. And, and, and so you, you get on this spiral that people think we're short, and we're short because people think we're short, and, and, and we have panic buying. So uh, I don't expect it'll be as bad as last time, and and if people don't believe me, uh, look back at last time and 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 remember how quickly our supply chains recovered. And you know, you bring up a valid point here. A paper towel you can completely understand as people are cleaning more, sanitizing more. At least that makes more sense than the toilet paper. Yes. Well, it, and and I think I think what happens is that. Uh, that 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 people project shortages onto other products, right? Yeah. No one wants to be sitting there and look at a roll uh, that's empty, <laughs> and then the cupboard is empty too. So they say, "Well, God, if we're running out, I'm going to make sure I have enough." And it's non-perishable. And I think the same thing happened with food last time. Uh, but we saw the system recover very quickly, uh, and, and we'll be fine. One of the things that that has. Uh, sustained a little bit is that the amount of variety has gone down a little bit, that the core high-demand products 
have been the priority of these companies. And so sometimes we may be short of a secondary product, but there are still lots of the primary product available. But again, if you see sort of empty shelf, we're not used to seeing it, people infer from it. And, and again, we see this vicious cycle of purchase empty, purchase more. Uh, how has this affected what it is that we purchase? Well, I think there's the, the, there have been a variety of things. We've seen sort of hoarding, and, and you know, nobody's buying uh, three months' worth of avocados because they, they just don't last that long. Yeah. So, so the things that have seen a real spike, particularly on, on inventory-building behaviors, are the non-perishable items, which would include toilet paper and paper towel. We've also seen some things go up in demand just because of circumstance, and that's where paper towel would come in. We are sanitizing our homes much more than we ever have before for a variety of reasons so that there's this unanticipated spike in demand that's sustained. It's not just people building inventories. It's people actually building more, uh, using more of it. Flour was another example. There are some things that we're eating less of, primarily because we ate them more in restaurants than we did at home. So uh, while many of us make chicken wings at home, we clearly eat more chicken wings in restaurants mm. than we do at home, so demand for those have gone down overall. So there have been some things that, that have changed in demand because of hoarding. There have been some things that have changed in demand because of where we're eating. And there are some things that have changed in demand just because we've changed our behavior. Uh, on that last note of changing behavior, how much of this has to do with not so much as a shortage or we're worried we're going to run out. It's just, I don't want to go to the store as often. Well, I think that's a very real thing. Now, that, that doesn't necessarily increase demand. It just means we're buying more each time we go. So yeah. if you and I are, are comfortable that we're not going to run out, uh, we might buy two packs of paper towel because we're, we're going to the store less frequently than we did. And because stores have uh, very little storage except for the shelf for most products at the store, that if, if we happen to get a rush on, a single, on, a, on, a, on an individual day, we can see shortages at the store level that are just because uh, I decided to go Wednesday instead of Thursday. So, so part of that is also that frequency. You're exactly right. So what advice do you have for shoppers, consumers, as it looks like we, we're heading into a second wave here? Well, my primary advice would be remain calm and carry on. Uh, if you don't believe me that the supply chain for food and cleaning products is in good shape and is going to catch up and we're going to be fine, uh, look back and see with an even bigger shock to the system that wave one was how quickly uh, products came back to the shelves. Uh, we are going to be fine. Uh, be respectful of the needs of everybody and buy what you need because you're going to be able to buy it again next week. There you have it. Michael von Massau has been with us, OAC Chair in Food System Leadership, Associate Professor of Food Agriculture and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph, talking about hoarding during a pandemic. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me and uh, stay safe. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Breaking news coming out right now uh, that uh, uh, there's something being put forward uh, by the Liberals right now in order to do uh, with uh, aid and, and COVID-19 pandemic relief and such. But uh, in there, as we saw before, it looks like there's also sort of a sweeping power grab that has the opposition uh, upset. Not only does the aid get to the people, but they don't get to operate. They don't have to operate as a minority government, meaning the Liberals, uh, during all of this sort of power grab thing. That's all part of the bill. They squeeze this in. Uh, and now uh, the liberals declare a confidence vote. They're thinking we're going to go and, and vote on this. And here we go. They're trying to force an election. It is uh, plainly obvious to me. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, thanks for your time. Much, uh, much appreciated. Your thoughts on uh, this latest news that's just moving where the liberals are declaring a confidence vote. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I saw that. Um, it's not really that big a deal, I think. Um, I think it would have been more of an issue had the NDP not decided a few days ago that they were going to back the Liberal throne speech, which will then ultimately turn into a financial matter when the budget is one of these days released. And because the NDP is going to back the Liberals during the throne speech, <clears throat> um, even though obviously the Liberals are trying to make this into a bit of a power grab, they're trying to force it more on an issue about COVID-19 benefits rather than some of the, shall we say, wrangling within the actual legislation, which will certainly give them more powers. There's no question about that. So if there hadn't been a throne speech or anything of the sort, I think this would have been more up in the air. But based on the fact that we sort of know where all the political parties are going to stand, which is mostly the Liberals and the NDP, possibly the three number of Green MPs on one side, and virtually everybody else on the other side, other than the two independents who are currently standing out this thing, um, I think we know how it's going to end up. So even though it's an interesting political story, unfortunately, I don't think this government's going to fall. Uh, at the end of the day, is this not similar to what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic when, again, all the aid was coming out but sort of slipped in there was, and then we get all of this power and for another year or two it was for a minority government. Obviously, the opposition uh, went nuts with that. Is, is the same sort of similar thing happening here? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, obviously, the circumstances are a little bit different and uh, the, the, the numbers, the money and the issues we talk about are obviously different. But yeah, <clears throat> pardon me, it is very similar to it. And unfortunately, if the opposition parties are not going to hold the liberal government to their feet and they're not going to force the issue on something like this to hold a federal election during a, the coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19, if you wish, which obviously is you know, on the hearts and minds of many Canadians, which is understandable because of all the things that we're going through. I think that the focus on another federal election obviously is turning off a lot of people, and I believe the Liberals recognize that as well. Should the Liberals be brought down and should there be another federal election? A hundred percent. Will it happen? I think it's closer to zero. Uh, and if you're the opposition, why even jump at this? Why would you just not let them know, here, take some more rope, take some more rope, take some more rope, and we'll decide when there's an election? Because that's politics. <laughs> I, mean, I can almost yeah. state it as simply as that. I'm not justifying what the liberals no. are doing. Unfortunately, it's expected almost. But no, the opposition parties are furious at it, and they're obviously trying to say something about it with the one exception, which being that being Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. If you notice... CTV and other media organizations have reported it, but the NDPs kept mainly silent on it because they have the private deal with Justin Trudeau and, and the Liberal minority government in place 
So they're not really riled up about it. However, if there was nothing like that happening and there was no situation or scenario like the one we're currently experiencing, you don't be surprised if all the opposition parties would have basically rammed the prime minister of this country very hard. But because everyone has decided which side they're on, it's interesting to watch. It's fascinating. It's another element of political theater, but I don't think it's going to really accomplish very much. So, uh, with uh, uh, they, they're more they the Liberals having more control over uh, Parliament and power and such, does that affect the committees and such that we're studying the Wee scandal and what have you prior to prorogation? Yeah, it should. Of course, it should, and that's the problem. The more power the Liberals obtain, the easier it is for them to con- is to control the narrative. Right. And the narrative would obviously also include the Wee charity scandal, which has hammered them very badly which has dropped them in popularity and in, po- in most opinion polls. Justin Trudeau's popularity has gone down. The liberal minority, go- liberal minority government's popularity has also gone down. So, yes, I mean, anything that the liberals write into the books or into any sort of a bill which can actually give them a benefit, even if it's just a temporary benefit in political terms, you're right, it's going to enhance their power and enhance their strength, ability to control the narrative, and most importantly, shut down any sort of committee that they feel is causing them a bit of an issue or a bit of a problem. But again, I just think because everyone has chosen sides on the throne speech and with respect to COVID-19 benefits, I just don't know if it's going to come into play. Maybe I'll be surprised by it, but I think everybody sort of knows the role they have to play and i just don't think they're going to change the narrative anytime soon at least so when it comes the, to this vote so with this new deal that the ndp are backing with the liberals that will be it for the we investigations there's no it because everybody everybody thought once this got back that these would just continue on again in october but that's not the case well, it's not that it's necessarily it. It just means that the Liberals will have more ability and right. more power and, and and just be able to enforce it a little bit harder. It doesn't mean that the opposition parties can't use other means and mediums to express their their anger and frustration at the We Charity scandal. If you can't do it as effectively through a government committee, you can still do it outside. You have the media. You have different interviews you can make. Limited numbers of stops that you do in terms of your local writings, pamphlets that you put out. There are still ways to get your message across, but no, I think it'll become much more difficult in government and in the House of Commons to effectively discuss this. It doesn't mean it's going to completely stop, but it'll be harder for it to take precedent over other issues. I can't let you go. Only got about 30 seconds left. Your thoughts about the Trump-Biden debate tonight? It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be obviously yeah. a very vicious debate, a very aggressive debate overall. I don't. If anybody is tuning in to watch a policy debate, it probably won't happen. Maybe a little bit of it, but not very much. I think it'll be interesting to also hear everyone, you know, various discussions they have on the way COVID-19 was handled, domestic and foreign policy, the Amy Coney Barrett nomination for the U.S. Supreme Court. There's a lot of intriguing issues that are taking place. And based on the fact that Real Clear Politics, one of the big political aggregators, is showing that Joe Biden is only now leading by 6.1% in terms of popularity, which is still comfortable, but is about two percentage points lower than he was at two weeks ago, it's showing that the race is tightening. So whereas usually presidential debates in the United States historically don't have a lot of meaning or importance, this one might to some extent. 
Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. You too. All right. Uh, tonight, if uh, you're a political head, boy, you're going to be watching. You know, it was funny. I was asking uh, an American reporter about this uh, last night. Is this uh, yesterday, rather? Is this must see TV? That being the debate between uh, uh, President uh, Donald Trump and uh, and Joe Biden. And again, he said, as many have said, people's minds are made up in most cases. There's not much undecided at this point. And this is just, I guess, uh, more of the same for many. Here's what uh, Donald Trump had to say when uh, it came forth that uh, he hasn't paid much tax of late. Actually, I paid tax. but And you'll see that as soon as my tax returns. It's underwater. They've been underwater for a long time. The IRS does not treat me well. They treat me like the Tea Party, like they treated the Tea Party. Uh, they don't treat me well. They treat me very badly. You'll learn much more if you look at those filings. Those filings are very complete. They're very big. They're very powerful. They're very accurate. Big, powerful, and accurate. Uh, let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Big day for you today. It is a big day. It's a big day for America. This is the first uh, presidential debate uh, underneath COVID restrictions. Uh, so it is going to be kind of a, a first time that we're going to see what it's like to see these two men face to face. COVID restrictions, quick idea of what that's all about. In other words, will we see Donald Trump roaming around the stage as he did with Hillary? Unlikely. Both men are going to be socially distanced on either side of the stage. Uh, there's going to be a very minimal audience inside, 75 to 80 people who will be COVID tested upon arrival. Uh, and that's going to make for a different atmosphere. Donald Trump won't be able to kind of revel in that uh, kind of, uh, you know, response that the audience can sometimes give him on stage. So this potentially could be either a more subdued debate or it simply will allow for fireworks to fly between the two men. So uh, obviously uh, uh, lots are expecting fireworks. Some are expecting more of the same. Uh, how much will this latest information in regard to Donald Trump's uh, paying of taxes fit into all of this? This is new information that came out just a couple of days ago. It is new information, uh, and it could play into how Joe Biden uh, anticipates that he will be able to shape this debate by making it a kind of elite against the working class Americans, kind of a Park Avenue where Donald Trump is from uh, versus a Scranton, Pennsylvania, which was Joe Biden's hometown to show that Donald Trump's uh, simply not working for the average American person. And that may be how Joe Biden decides to use these Trump tax uh, kind of stories and revelations that have come out over the last couple of days. But as you had alluded to off the beginning of this, is it must-see TV? Well, yeah, most Americans have had their political opinions baked in for the last several months, if not the last several years. And those who are tuning in are either because they're in the base of the person that they want to watch, or they're anticipating that there could potentially be something new that they learn, or something new that they're going to be able to understand about a candidate, because there are still somewhere between 10 and 13 percent of the country that are considered to be undecided voters. So is this tax issue that came up, especially with the commercial that we saw from the Biden camp, uh, telling all of these, uh, showing all these profiles of different people and how much money, how much tax they paid every year? They say it only takes one thing like that to resonate. Uh, we've seen many of those in this president's career. Do you think this is any different, or like everybody said, this is just another one of those many, many things that could have just taken anyone else out? Well, I mean, look, it does take one thing to kind of make an impact with voters. But again, when you have bases that have really been solidified for the last several months, again, the last several years, 
it's not going to potentially move the needle very much. Look, the Access Hollywood tapes came out almost at this exact same time four years ago. That didn't move any people away from Donald Trump that weren't already in his camp anyways. Uh, and it didn't also do anything for Hillary Clinton. So in these kind of uh, bitterly politically divided times, one thing may not be enough to push people outside of your base. It could be enough to push people in that key swing vote uh, that uh, that these camps are really looking for, uh, because if you break it down by numbers, tax or not, uh, Joe Biden simply needs to grab one percent of the undecided voters. And what that would do is flip four states in his favor and make it almost impossible for this to become a contested election. If there are something inside that 10 percent of undecided voters who feel bothered and disturbed by what they've learned because of President Trump's taxes, that technically or potentially rather could be a net gain for Joe Biden. Uh, obviously, Reggie, uh, this isn't your first rodeo, but can anyone kind of predict what we're going to see tonight? Uh, what is the biggest challenge for each one of these, starting with Trump? Well, I mean, it, the messaging is going to be their key challenge. Donald Trump is going to paint this as a, uh, a debate between the choice of two men and their visions for America. Donald Trump is going to be incredibly forward-looking. He's not going to linger on the coronavirus pandemic uh, and face the reality that his response protect, uh, potentially left 205-plus thousand Americans dead. He's going to look at the economy, saying America is turning its corner. That's going to be problematic and fought back on by Joe Biden, who's going to make this a referendum about Donald Trump, not only because of his coronavirus response, but because of, uh, you know, hit and miss legislative wins and losses over the last four years, but also social and racial injustice that's going on across the country right now. Donald Trump's four years is going to be called into question, whereas Donald Trump is going to ignore those four years and try to move it forward. Both of these men are skilled and good at debate, and they know how to get each other off of their kind of stools that they're standing on. So that's what we're trying to watch for to see who's going to throw the first fireworks into the crowd. What about personal attacks, attacks on, you know, because, again, this is an election about character, um, but this is a very controlled environment. There are set times. One speaks, then the other speaks, and then there's times, of course, when they can debate. What what do you think we're going to see as far as personality conflict and just downright bickering? Well, if they're going to be going along the lines of personal attacks, it is a worry for Democrats because it does press the buttons of Joe Biden. And he does tend to get angry about it and push back and it puts him off track and can put him on a tangent. So people close to Joe Biden have been pushing him that if Donald Trump decides to go after his family, whether or not it's about Hunter Biden or any extended part of Biden's family, to simply turn it around and say that that doesn't impact the broad American public because someone like Hunter Biden is not up for election. It also could backfire on President Trump because of Hunter Biden. Donald Trump is an impeached president, and that could be used as an attack back on Joe Biden, uh, whereas Donald Trump's family and personal attacks on Donald Trump, that simply works to energize a base underneath Joe Biden, but it also stops Joe Biden from being able to talk about the message he wants to get across to America. So he has uh, kind of a dance to be able to move around on that stage very carefully to not get sucked into some kind of vortex on personal attacks to Donald Trump, which then takes away from his ability to talk to America. What about COVID-19, where America is right now with this uh, coronavirus and, and obviously an impending election? How much of this is going to be on the table? This is likely going to be the number one topic that is brought up because this happened under Donald Trump's watch. There's going to be questions about whether Donald Trump moved fast enough. And despite the fact that he says that his response was adequate, there are 205,000 dead Americans. That is a question that is a figure that cannot be denied. And that number is going to continuously go up until there is a vaccine. The president has promised a vaccine is coming. 
saying that it could be ready by the election. It's simply a way to try and drum up support within his base and take away some of that fear across the country. But at the end of the day, that's going to face pushback from Joe Biden, who's going to call out the realities of the situation, that testing has been poor and failed across this country, that the response from the president has been poor and failed, and that science has been ignored uh, for the betterment of Donald Trump's kind of political career. And these are things that are going to be pushed back on Donald Trump, likely not only by Joe Biden, but also by the moderator, Chris Wallace. Uh, how much time does Biden spend on that? Because, uh, you know, I mean, this could easily be spun around like all, the, you know, Joe Biden did was attack Trump, 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 Trump. Um, uh, what about correcting him or bringing forth past statements that he said? Like, for example, it was all a hoax. I mean, clearly, and that it would go away. Will statements like that come back to haunt him? Will Biden use that? It's possible, but Joe Biden's also been advised to not spend his time on stage fact-checking uh, fact Donald Trump because, again, you can get stuck in, in a kind of uh, never-ending cycle of fact-checking what the president has said uh, over the last four years or even during his time on stage. And, again, that takes away from uh, Joe Biden's ability to be able to talk to America, whether it's about his policy and plans going forward or whether it's trying to show empathy for the number of Americans who have died and for the families that are dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. This is going to be one of those debates that we've never seen before. We're not going to understand how the audience is going to play into this. We're not going to be able to you know, determine beforehand what the president is going to be able to do because there are so many current uh, concurrent crises that are impacting Donald Trump right now that Joe Biden is going to try to, A, talk around, but also try to go after Donald Trump about. All right, last question, Reggie. What about prepping for all of this? Because obviously you said that uh, Biden taking time off to get ready for this. Uh, Donald Trump saying, I think, in front of the press the other day that, you know, I get this every day. I don't need to prepare. Your thoughts? Well, look, this is going to be a contrast to preparations uh, because Joe Biden has spent the last several days going over the president's tweets, going over notes, going through books uh, to try and figure out how he's going to address the public. Uh, it's also worth noting that Joe Biden is a skilled debater. He's been doing this for decades now. He understands how to get up on stage. There's also been a very low bar set for Joe Biden. So he simply has to come out uh, and give kind of straightforward answers. Uh, and that's going to be declared a victory by the Democrats. Donald Trump has done little to no research and planning for this uh, for this debate. He did have Chris Christie and Rudy Giuliani at the White House over the weekend. They are said to have you know done a practice run for a couple of hours. Trump says that his daily debate prep is uh, when he's facing the media, but it's worth pointing out that when the media asks Donald Trump questions, he simply either walks away or deflects and talks about something else. So if that is to be considered a debate prep, Democrats are again going to say it's a win for Joe Biden. Hmm. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Have a great time, Reggie. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, obviously, as, as cases are starting to tick up in Ontario, although today, not too bad, 554, not too bad, uh, but better than yesterday, which was 700. So uh, obviously we've got to keep a handle on this uh, before it gets out of hand. And we know what happened uh, the first time when they closed down everything and it affected virtually every walk of life, trying to be a lot more targeted in that uh, so we can keep uh, some sort of the uh, some sort of society open. One of the reasons 
Uh, for example, uh, when this first wave st- first started, was concern over what this was. Nobody knew much about the virus uh, as well, PPE, supplies, that sort of thing. So uh, lots of surgeries, lots of regular appointments per se were canceled as hospital and the healthcare system got ready for whatever it was uh, that this COVID-19 was. And, you know, if you were in getting uh, or you were scheduled to have some sort of surgery or what have you, uh, a lot of that has been put on hold. Many of us have had to postpone our physicals or our dentist appointments or things like that just because of what happened. Uh, Slowly, things are starting to get back to normal. However, there is obviously a backlog of surgeries and a backlog of, uh, of procedures that have to be done. And when you're thinking of a second wave, uh, uh, my goodness, you can think of, of, of how much anxiety that must create, not only with the patients, but the healthcare system as well. Let's bring in Bruce Squires, president of McMaster's, uh, McMaster Children's Hospital and is with us now. Bruce, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. Pleasure to, to be with you. And I, I'm doing well. Hope the same for you. So can you put this in perspective for us, Bruce, uh, how, uh, how much was the hospital shut down and, and this sort of stuff put off to the side? Uh, how difficult has it been for you and your staff to, to fire this back up again and try to get to some sort of sense of, of normalcy here? Well, well, thanks very much, Don. I mean, just just to, to to give you a sense of the of the magnitude of uh, of the reductions that we experience. So, so if we look at our our, our pediatric surgeries, so surgeries are, and again, kids under eighteen for all sorts of things: scoliosis surgery, dental surgery, um, often life saving surgery. We had to cancel fifty eight percent of of those surgeries and seventy percent. Of, uh, of the procedures, uh, non-surgical procedures that that uh, we provide here at McMaster Children's, and the the impact of that was was um, uh, from a numbers perspective, we saw the number of of, uh, of kids that were waiting beyond what we would call a clinically acceptable wait time. The short version of that is waiting too long, um, go up by 133 percent. So a really significant number. What it means in the in the specific is you've got, uh, for example, with scoliosis, um, there are windows when a child begins to experience um, challenges with curvature of their spine, and and if you can act quickly, um, then the surgery can be relatively minor. Um, the possibility of of uh, of, of negative long term implications on on uh, their range of motion and, for example, on on respiratory function, on how they breathe, can be minimized. But if you miss that window, if those surgeries are delayed, then the, the, the chances of, of, uh, of those complications and those limitations on their ability to function go up significantly. Um, and in the case of, of scoliosis surgery, um, 93% of those were canceled in the initial stages mm-hmm. of, uh, of, the, uh, of the pandemic. So as we start to look at um, how can we uh, recover from surgeries, um, you know, our initial projections would show that even to get, to get back to our previous wait list, and we had at McMaster, we had over, over 400 kids who were, who were already beyond clinical times even before the pandemic. Well, just to get back to those levels, um, it looked like close to two years, and, I, and I've heard similar things from, from my colleagues at other children's hospitals across the province. We've been working um, to identify mechanisms to, to kind of shorten that time frame, um, uh, you know, 
running additional um, ORs over uh, at, at sort of different times of the day, and, and the province had has provided uh, some funding to help with the surgical backlog, um, but uh, at this point, um, it hasn't really been targeted to um, to uh, to the needs of children and youth, um, and so don't really expect that that no, those numbers have been significantly reduced. So you know, you talked about concern as as someone responsible for a children's hospital. I mean, remain really concerned about the 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 implications of on access to care, not only for surgeries, but for, for mental health services and for, um, uh, in particular, for, for services for kids with, with physical and developmental needs. Um, and so, you know, I guess, if, well, if, well, I've got to the last thing I'd say is, therefore, I, I really do um, uh, support and encourage everyone to support whatever we can do as individuals and as a community to try and uh, reduce the likelihood of a more significant uh, second wave that may again um, force us to place further restrictions on, in our case, the ability to deliver health care, but in a more general sense on the ability of, for example, kids to go to school. You bring up a valid point here too, Doctor, about making the differentiation, differentiation between uh, adults and kids. This is not like somebody who's waiting for a knee replacement or work done on their elbow or something like this, because because kids are in a development stage. There's, as you said, a certain time to fix something before they start growing again and either the problem resolves itself or, or, or gets worse. Uh, with kids, boy, you're dealing with a limited amount of time there. Yeah, that's exactly right, and 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 you know that that can manifest at so many different points in uh, in the development of of kids. You know, right from right from the start, um, things like um, infant hearing assessments are critical to the identification of of challenges with hearing, and and then the you know the the, the putting in place actions and therapies that can. Um, uh, address that hearing loss and reduce the impact. Um, things like OT and, or sorry, speech language therapy and audiology. And uh, unfortunately, we saw wait lists for for those types of services um, uh, go to, um, to to many many months. Um, in some cases, to uh, to from from two months to uh, to a full year. Um, then we've got the example when I talk about scoliosis. That's really about about um, uh, particularly helpful in in uh, in the the, the late uh, single digits of a of a child's life. So in the seven, eight, nine, ten year old range. Um, and then when we, when we think about mental health services, it really hits home, right? If you're not able um, to access uh, support. Um, as a child, youth, or as a, f- a family, at that crisis point where um, you're experiencing mental health challenges, um, then uh, you know the potential implications are are severe. And we know that that in Canada already, one one in five uh, children experience um, challenges with, uh, with 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 thoughts around suicidality and otherwise. And our wait lists for for mental health across Ontario are in. Are uh, um, again even pre-COVID, we had 28,000 kids um, waiting to access any mental health services. So, um, you know, when we think about about uh, about COVID um, and the pandemic, um, it's 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 important to to remember and and to recognize that while the infection is certainly more severe with uh, 
with ad adults and with um, the more elderly in our population with significant medical um, uh, needs, the, um, the effect of COVID and the effect of the measures that we have put in place to deal with the pandemic can be more significant on kids, not only now, but into their futures. Uh, you've touched on an interesting point, and we've, we've certainly touched about the mental uh, health aspect of this uh, on many occasions. But, you know, I, I was talking with uh, family and such. We were talking about kids that, uh, you know, that are now starting school, say, for example, in kindergarten, who will know no other uh, school life other than from behind a mask. Uh, can think of uh, parents of newborn baby who, uh, you know, everybody wants to come and see, everybody wants to be a part of it, and then they're isolated because of fear of spreading uh, this coronavirus. What about the, um, uh, you know, even kids going up into a playground and wanting to hug each other? They can't do that anymore. Uh, how concerned are you about how, how that impact, how that is going to impact kids in the long term? Yeah, we're... we're... I think we're very concerned um, really across the child and youth health community, if I can call it, call it that, you know, folks that, that think about the future, future of our kids. Um, certainly children um, in general can be extremely resilient and adaptive, um, and uh, you can still go to pl playgrounds now and see how kids are playing a little bit differently but are still, mm -hmm. are still being kids. Um, but, but really the, the, the thing that that I think we have to emphasize is that um, for, for some kids in some situations, um, be that related to their, to their own health, but also to the environment, including in particular kids in, in more vulnerable circumstances um, from a family perspective, in our, our marginalized and, and racialized communities, that um, the, the, the need for and the importance for, um, for, for access to supports uh, healthcare supports, mental healthcare supports, but also school, educational, development supports. Like it's really critical um, that those be available, um, uh, you know, and accessible in a timely way. And yeah, the the concern is that the the pandemic and um, and its imp impact on access to healthcare, but also its impact on on the school environment, the social environment. Um, has been um, has has been such that that uh, you know those those opportunities to to help and to reach out um, to kids when they need it have been um, been reduced made that that much more difficult. So um, so here at, at McMaster, um, along with our partners, really across across the city and across the, the province and around the world, to focus on kids, we've tried to put in in place um, as many sort of supports for families um, as as we can. I'll, I'll, I'll highlight the example of our caring during COVID video se series on our on uh, uh, that's on YouTube and mm -hmm. our. Our uh, back-to-school resources on our our, our MCH Master Children's Hospital um, website to try and help families with um, and 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 kids with those those challenges in in kind of accessing the supports in this really strange environment. And there are many many more uh, available across uh, again in Hamilton, across our community, and across the the region. Um, but uh, um, it's still a significant concern, and and I you know I think that that um, we need um, and we're calling for um, mm -hmm. uh, our governments to focus a little bit more specifically on 
children and youth is a priority in um, in both kind of managing the pandemic right now and in COVID recovery. So from a from a federal per perspective, from a provincial perspective, we we think we really need a more specific. Um, focus on on children and youth. Bruce Squires has been with us, President McMaster uh, Children's Hospital, talking about how this pandemic has affected kids and those awaiting for surgeries and procedures. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.